But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to, to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in, in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and, and blemishes, reveling in their, de in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the, the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of, of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is a slave. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Amen. You guys can take a seat. I want to begin this morning by asking a question for you to think about. What would you do... If you knew someone who had done something awful to you or to someone that you love and was about to get away with it. All right. Think about that. What would you do? If someone did something awful to you or someone you really, really loved, but you knew they were going to get away with it. I think if we took time, even a, a brief time, just to survey movies over the past 10 to 20 years. One of the biggest categories that I see is what we could call vigilante revenge movies. All right, probably one is coming to mind already. 
uh, as I say that word or that category. But the basic plot is this. Something's horrible done to someone or a group of people. The wicked person seems to get off the hook for the crime. And then uprises some vigilante hero or leader that is going to carry out justice or revenge on that person. They are so upset with what they see that they don't wait for the normal channels of justice. They take it into their own hands. And many times we praise them for it. Maybe movies like Man on Fire or Equalizer series with Denzel Washington. Or for that fact, I think half of Denzel's movies are that way. Or this, the Taken series from Liam Nielsen, right? Or maybe even the Bourne trilogy, Matt Damon. And on and on and on. We have tons of examples of movies of vigilante justice and revenge. It just gets into our crawl and we can't get it out of us that they're not going to experience justice. And so we root for that person that's going to carry it out on them. It's just not right, we argue. Well, as the Apostle Peter writes to this group of Christians, one of the things that are on his mind is this very question. How do we deal with people that are seemingly going to get away with doing wicked things and teaching wicked things? False teaching, for example. Because when, it, when we look at the world, it, it seems like right now in the midst of it that they're going to get away with it. What do we do there? What do Christians do? Well, instead of this vigilante justice, Peter proposes another way. And we're going to look at that this morning as we see in chapter 2. We're going to see that because God's word is completely trustworthy, we should rest assured that God will take care of the wicked and that he will preserve the righteous. All right, that's our, those are our two points. Only two points this morning. God takes care of the wicked. He will preserve the righteous. So look, let's look here at chapter 2. First, uh, which is the bulk of the chapter, is the certain fate of the wicked. Back to verse 1. Look there. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, I just said that the Apostle Peter is trying to warn these Christians and prepare them for what is about to come, and which is probably already there. Mixed in with the people of God and their church are those who wish to do Christians harm. I actually had a good picture today on my PowerPoint, and it was a sheep, or sorry, a wolf among the sheep, right? My son saw that picture, he says, What's the wolf doing there, right? Why is there a wolf right there in the middle of all of them? Don't the sheep know that the wolf is there? That was actually a pretty perceptive question of him, right? They should know, and yet many times they do not. These are ones that maybe on the outside look to be a part of us, but on the inside they wish to do us harm. And we're not going to take a look at, an exhaustive look at who these people are, because Pastor Santo and I have kind of alluded to that at various times already through our look at 2 Peter. But I want to encourage you to go back in your own time and to read this exhaustive description that Titus just read of these false teachers. It's sometimes a hard pill to swallow. 
But these are false teachers that were not just back in their day, as Peter reminds them, his original audience, but they're also in our day as well. Hardly do they ever wear a flashing sign that says, hey, I'm a false teacher, don't listen to me. That's not the way it works, right? Their deception is secretive. It's hard to detect. It's subversive, subtle. Like a, a master fisherman, you're right, he wants to make that bait subtle. He knows it's fake, but the fish might not know it's fake. And so he puts that fake bait on to make it look exactly like a real fish. So that, that fish that he's trying to catch will pounce on that. And before they know it, the fish is hooked. That's the same thing that happens. It's game over. It's too late. Sometimes these false teachers make it tricky to detect. They use Christianese or Christian terms, for example. But they mean something totally opposite. I was reminded of this recently. I was reading a book about the beginnings of uh, our denomination. And I want to tell you a little bit about this book. It was in response to the mainline Presbyterians who were going liberal, meaning they were straying away from the Bible. Right? A lot of our mainline denominations did this over the 1900s. They were going away from the Bible, not believing in God's word. But the way they did it was sneaky and tricky. They would use the same language or biblical terms or words like redemption or justification, which are biblical words, but what would they do? They would make a completely opposite meaning. That was a tricky part of liberalism in the, in the 20th century. They would say something that would be like, oh yeah, they're on the same page with us. They believe what we believe. But then when you actually dug down into it, it was the opposite. No, they don't. They, they deny things like Jesus died in our place on the cross. Or that he had to die in the place, or on the cross. Right? They, they totally change around the meaning of the gospel. They do it in a backdoor kind of way. And that's what 2 Peter here in chapter 2 is all about. And we need to remember that chapter 2 was written primarily to Christians. Right? Not to a non-Christians. And that's important. He has a point and a purpose in cluing you and me as Christians into these tricksters, into these false teachers' way of operating. Last week, Pastor Santo, he preached on uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. He talked about the certainty, the reliability, the trustworthiness of God's word. God's word stands over and against these false teachers and their word. And in the end, God's word wins. But here's the problem. In the present, it seems like the false teachers get the upper hand. It seems like they're going to win. That they're going to get away with tricking people to come away from God's church, to come away from God's word, and to do things that are destructive. We just prayed for, for our city and how many we see across our city that that's happening to. Where people on the streets that are doing sinful and destructive things say, come over here, do what I'm doing. Right? At first it seems attractive. At first it seems cool. But then they don't realize that it's going to destroy them. And just like we said in the beginning, it's hard when we face 
the reality that sometimes it seems like they're going to get off the hook. And we want to take things into our own hands. What do we do then as Christians when we find ourselves in that place? And I believe that's one of the main points of chapter 2 here. See, Peter is clear in chapter 2 about the certain fate of the wicked and the false teachers. Verse 1, we already read, bringing upon themselves swift destructions. Verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. What a picture being portrayed there. God's judgment on them is not sleeping. It is awake. It is there. It is not idle. Verse 12, but these will also be destroyed in their destruction. See, God wants you and me to rest assured that he is going to take care of the wicked. Make no bones about that. He will take care of them just like he did in Peter's day. And before Peter's day, throughout the whole Old Testament, he will do it in our day. Those who sneak in these destructive lies, those who exploit us for their own financial gain or those that we know, those that have an insatiable appetite for sin and lust and greed, they will not escape punishment. They will not escape justice. One commentator puts it this way. God's verdict on sin has been crystal clear from the very beginning. From the first warning about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. When you eat of it, you will surely die. God was clear from the very beginning. What would happen to the wicked? What would happen to the false teachers? But maybe you're still not convinced. Or maybe you're in the middle of a trial with false teachers and that wound is still very fresh. Maybe you have friends that are being currently deceived by these false teachers. Well, Peter goes on to give us more proof, more evidence that God will carry out his justice by looking back at his past actions with false teachers. Commentators point out that verses 4 through 9 are actually one long sentence in the original language. It's a long if-then statement. Let me show you what I mean here. Peter gives us three examples of how God took care of the wicked and the false teachers in the past to give us encouragement in the present that he will deal with them. Look there, verse 4, the example of the fallen angels. Verse 5, the example of Noah and the ungodly haters of his time. Verse 6, the example of Lot and sin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In each time, God took care of the wicked. He preserved the righteous. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But he took care of the wicked. They did not escape. Notice a few things here as well. One pastor points out with these examples. One thing he points out, that no one is exempt from judgment. Not, the, not even the angels. Not even the fallen angels, not the mocking world of Noah's day, not the people of Sodom of Gomorrah, none of them got off the hook. Second, also notice that judgment, though delayed, is real. That's important. Judgment, though delayed, is real. Again, we ask that question, when are you going to take care of it, God? I see them getting away with it, and it's bugging me, it's getting in my craw, 
What do I do? It's real. Third, the pattern of that judgment has been revealed. Meaning, if you look back at the way that God judged the wicked in the past, it provides us with a way that he will do it in the future. But, if we look back at the flood and the vaporization of Sodom and Gomorrah, we know that the ultimate fate of the wicked and false teachers is going to be a million times worse than that. That's just a foretaste. And it's not something that we delight to tell or delight to share, but it's a reality the Bible speaks to. It will be way worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Way worse than the flood. But make no mistake about it, false teachers are in our midst. They are all around us at our work, in our neighborhoods, the TV shows that we watch, our computer, our YouTube feed, whatever, they're out there. They may seem outlandish and off the wall sometimes. Other times you may kind of think, oh, maybe they're making a little bit of sense. And that's, again, how the false teachers are deceptive. That's how the false teachers are subtle. How some of us or some of our friends have been tricked and deceived before. And you took the bait and all of a sudden you realize, oh, this wasn't what I thought it was. Could be the Christian cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. It could be the liberal teachers that we just talked about. Could be the health and wealth prosperity folks. It could be new age teachers talking about your best life now. But what's the same thing with all of them? They deny the apostolic word of the gospel, the true prophetic word that we saw last time in verses 16 to 21. They add or they subtract from God's word. That's the same for all of the false teachers. This is why you and I need to bind ourselves, tether ourselves to God's word. It's why we, you know, me and Pastor Santo talk encouraging you to be in God's word. It's not just something for the pastors, it's something for all of us. We need it to survive. We need it to detect false teaching. How will you know what truth, truth is versus falsehood if you don't get in your Bible? If I don't get in my Bible, that's the only way that we can steer clear of these false teachers. But rest assured, that their fate is certain. God is not sleeping. They will not escape. They will be held accountable for every deceptive teaching on the final judgment day. Remember, 2 Peter is looking forward to Jesus' return. And for those that know Christ, it's going to be an awesome day. Right? We can't wait for that day. We sing about that day when Christ will return. But for the wicked, it will be a fearful an awful day. They will not get away with it. But I want to go on to talk about this one more assurance that Peter gives believers here in this text. He doesn't give many verses to it, but it's a powerful tool for you and me to put in our tool belt when dealing with uh, these deceptive teachers as we await the second coming. And that's God's preservation of the righteous. Remember, we just said a minute ago that verses 4 through 9 is a big if-then statement. Well, one part of that statement we've already looked at, which is that God will keep 
uh, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. But the second part of it is equally important for us, which is, look at verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Okay, so we looked already at the first one. God's going to take care of the wicked, but he's going to rescue the godly from trials. But before we go into God fighting our battles, as we sing often in that song, I think we need to be reminded for a few minutes about our past. And you may be saying, well, what do you mean, Pastor Pete? We need to remember what separates us from the ungodly, from the wicked. There's only one thing that separates you and I from the false teachers, from the wicked, and from the ungodly. One word. Grace. Now, I can't stress this enough, but this is important for us to get. The grace of God separates you and me from these false teachers. We received a gift that we didn't work for, that we didn't earn. Right? We received that gift simply by faith, just kind of putting our hands out to receive that gift. It was not something that when God looked at you, he saw something special. It's only because of Jesus. He showed us the end of our lust and our greed and our sensuality and our adultery and on and on and on. He showed us that the end of our sin was destruction. For the wages of sin is death. God showed us that. He opened up our minds to understand that truth. He showed us our need for a Savior. He gave us freedom from our slavery to sin and its consequences. Right? Peter goes on to talk about how these false teachers, they're enslaved to their sin. How can they offer freedom to you and to me when they are slaves themselves? There's only one that can offer freedom, and that's Jesus. And he offered that to you and to me. And so when we come to this text... We have to have a humble, thankful heart. I can't be bragging that I'm not the false teacher. Because if it wasn't for Jesus working in my life, I would be the false teacher. I would be spewing that same hate. I would be spewing that same destruction. And inviting others to come and to do the same thing. And so here in chapter 2, we have this two-pronged assurance about the certain fate of the ungodly and God's preservation of the godly. And this is all in the midst of waiting for Jesus' second coming. Sometimes we forget that, right? We forget that we're waiting for something. We get too comfortable in this world. We think that this world is our home. I was talking to my family about that the other night. We were sitting around at the table saying, this world is not our home. So it shouldn't feel like our home. Yes, God gives us traveling mercies. He gives us grace along the way. We enjoy plenty of things about the world that God created. But there should be an uneasiness. There should be the rub for you and for me that says, this is not quite it. Right? Because we're waiting for something better. And so as we bring up the stories here of Noah and Lot in verses 5 and 6, the idea here is that if God can preserve them as they wait, God can preserve you and for me. 
right? But again, we have to go back to that rub. It feels like that the wicked get their way. It feels like that they get all the money, they get all the comfort, they get all the ease, and it feels like they have the upper hand. We begin to doubt that God is good. We begin to doubt that God is true. We take the old bait that the old serpent gave in the garden. Did God's word really say? Is that what he said? Maybe he said something else. Maybe he meant this. Listen to this quote from one pastor. He says, The temptation is to think that because the unrighteous seem to run the world, and sometimes the churches too, that God has ceased to rule. He has not. But the alert Christian will find it a painful business to be faithful surrounded by filth. You ever found yourself there? Do you find it a painful exercise to remain faithful in the midst of a fallen world? I'm sure we've all been there before. Maybe we're there right now. It is in these moments that we need to hear God's assurance that he knows how to keep us and not just that he knows that, but that he actually does. He preserves us. He upholds us. He has good reasons not bringing us up to heaven the minute we become Christians. He could have. He could have beamed us right up and said, all right, game over. That one's saved. No, but he has work for us to do in this world. He has work for us to do on this battlefield called earth. But we must remember that on this battlefield, we are not alone. The Christian's claim is that I am on the battlefield for the Lord and he is on the battlefield with me. Right? We cannot forget that. Yeah, we got work to do. Yeah, it's going to be a battle. Yes, it's going to be hard. But we're not here alone. One, we have each other. Right? That's why God puts us in churches, local churches, that we can do life together. When one is strong and the other one is weak, we help each other on the battlefield. But God himself is with us on the battlefield. I referenced a quote from this movie before, but I want to share it with you again. It's from We Were Soldiers. There's a scene before, just before they go off to war. Mel Gibson is the commanding officer and he's speaking realistically about the battle that they are going to face there over in Vietnam. And uh, he gives them a promise in the midst of this harsh reality that some of them are going to die. He says this, I can't promise you that I will bring you all home alive. But this I swear before you and Almighty God that when we go into battle, I will be the first to set foot on the field and I will be the last to step off. And I will leave no one behind. Dead or alive, we will all come home together. So help me God. Now I must admit it's, it's a scene that resonates with me. Um, when I think about the battlefield that we are on as Christians, it brings up a great parallel here to God's promise in verse 9. But God does not promise us that there won't be a battle. He says, while you are here, while you are waiting the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be a battle day in and day out. Bullets will fly at you. 
Sometimes they will fly from unexpected places. Maybe more friendly fire, right? Sometimes we don't expect it. From those even inside the church, the wolves that are among the sheep, bullets are flying at you from all directions. But Jesus, in a sense, is the first on the battlefield. He's already started that war. And when he returns, he will be the last one off the battlefield. But only after his final and decisive blow to the enemy. Do you believe that? He will decisively take care of the enemy and of the wicked. And even better than this earthly promise we just looked at, the Lord Jesus will bring us all home safely together to live with him eternally. That's the blessing of the gospel, eternal life with God. Sharing in his victory. We look forward to the redemption of all the world, the restoration, to going back to even better than the Garden of Eden, returning to that paradise with God forever. And that is our assurance. It will be a sweet and wonderful day. But as we await on the battlefield, we must remember that he is for us. We must remember that he is with us. He has given us a promise and he's given us his word. To which we said last week is more sure. His word is sure. Be in it. Take it in however you can. Study it, memorize it, meditate on it, share it with others. Remind yourselves of these precious promises. That's what chapter 2 is all about. It's a two-pronged assurance. The assurance that he will take care of the wicked and that he will preserve the godly. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we know that we are on the battlefield for you. And that battlefield is not always what we think it's going to be. Sometimes we have a, a rosy colored picture of battlefield stuff as a Christian. But Lord, it's, it's anything but that. A lot of us have scrapes and wounds, sometimes big wounds from sin, sometimes big wounds from living in a fallen world. And, and God, we need your healing. And God, we need your help. We need your strength, God, to, to fight another day. We need your strength to believe that you are actually going to return a second time. We need your help not to doubt and to fear your justice and try and take things into our own hands. Father, we can't do this on our own. And so we come before you and we ask, simply help us. We pray that you would do it for our good, and we pray that you would do it for your glory. God, we pray that as we go out of here today, that we would be re-energized and refocused and ready for what is ahead of us. Help us as the people of God, as this local church, New City Fellowship, that we would encourage each other as we are on the battlefield here in Atlantic City and the surrounding area, wherever you put us. We can't do it without each other, Lord. We need each other. 
God, we pray that you would be glorified as we wait. And we pray that you would help us to wait faithfully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.